This is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you decided to tune in today. We are here every week at this time. And I have a terrific show lined up for you today. Joining me in segments two and three today is a gentleman I'm always pleased to have on the program, Mr. Lawrence Reed, who is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, uh, will be joining me today. Uh, He's going to tell us about an initiative that he is involved with that um, I'm a big fan of. It's called the Open the Books Initiative. And we're also going to talk to him a bit about what we can learn about Venezuela. Uh, Mr. Reed has studied that extensively. And, of course, uh, if you'd like to learn more about what's going on in the economy, what's going on in the markets, what you might think about doing with your money, we do have some free resources available. You can visit retirementlifestyleadvocates.com, and there's a resources section on the website. Uh, you can also visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com and sign up for our free weekly newsletter delivered via email. Uh, the newsletter is delivered every Monday at 5 o'clock, and again, it's rla.yourportfoliowatch.com yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription to the newsletter. And rest assured, uh, we never sell your information. We never uh, spam you. We just get you the newsletter once per week. You know, I get some feedback uh, here uh, on the program from many listeners who say you've got some terrific guests, but sometimes they use terms that I am not completely familiar with. So in this segment, I want to take just a minute and talk about a couple of terms that really you'll want to be familiar with. In fact, uh, when I talk to Mr. Reed today, I'm sure these terms will come up. And there's certainly more than two schools of economics. However, we often talk about the Keynesian school of economics and the Austrian school of economics. And certainly today's policymakers subscribe more and adhere more closely to the Keynesian school of economics. Now, I have an analogy here that uh, I found that was uh, actually put together um, by in an op-ed forum that uh, I really liked. And it's an analogy about the differences between the Keynesian school of economics and the Austrian school of economics. And here's the analogy. In the early 1900s, the U.S. Forest Service implemented a new policy to aggressively suppress all forest fires. Citizens didn't like to see the trees burn, and the lumber companies saw profits going up in smoke. Over the years, they obtained equipment, trained men, and they worked out elaborate plans. And with time and money, they reduced fire damage considerably. Now, as the years passed, the forest management experts began to notice problems. Without these periodic small fires, the undergrowth became thick. It ignited more easily. It acted as additional fuel, making the fire hotter, and sent it up to the crowns of the mature trees. This spread the fire faster and further, killing more of the forest. With further study, they found that in the past, forest experienced periodic small fires which cleared the undergrowth and burned up the dead wood. Before they had put all these elaborate fire prevention techniques in place, these small fires 
clear the undergrowth, burn up the dead wood, and that meant that there wasn't enough fuel to spread the fire quickly and reach the crowns of the mature trees. In other words, these small fires burned themselves out often without doing great damage. And these small fires triggered the trees to, 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 to sprout and start a new generation. The mature trees also grew better because it had the uh, effect of clearing out the forest. The old policy of trying to manage nature was counterproductive, so the policy was changed to allow the natural cycle to return. Now here's how that relates to the Keynesian School of Economics and the Austrian School of Economics. The Keynesian School of Economics basically says or concludes that all recessions are bad and these recessions need to be suppressed by government actions. And you have to do this because we've got to protect established businesses. We've got to protect jobs. We've got to keep unemployment low. And if you go back and just take a look at what's happened fairly recently, we've seen bailouts of airlines. We've seen bailouts of major car companies. Uh, we have seen Keynesian economics in action. Now, whenever government intervenes, and government spends money to try to take up the slack during a recession, that spending is very costly. But the argument is it's costly, but we have to do it to protect. It provides a benefit to the population overall. Now, on the other hand, the Austrian School of Economics says that when markets stray too far from reality, they get purged by adversity. This clears the unneeded or failing enterprises so capital is not allocated wastefully and new businesses can emerge. So the Austrian school, to go back and use the forest fire analogy, would simply say, let the small fires burn. They don't do a significant amount of damage and they protect the mature trees. The Keynesian school would say, all fires are bad. Now granted, that's not an exact analogy. However, it's one that really makes the point well. Now, think about the Keynesian school for a minute. Where does the money come from for the government to take up the slack in a recession? Well, to answer that question, you really have to ask another one. If you want to know where the money comes from, the next logical question is, where do governments get the money? Where do governments get money to start with? Well, they tax the private sector. Governments don't produce anything. And what happens to tax revenue during a recession? A recession is defined technically as two consecutive quarters of economic contraction. That's a recession. Well, when the economy contracts, tax revenue contracts with it. So what you have is a situation where tax revenues are declining and the government is spending more in order to take up the slack. They're spending more, that is the government is spending more at the very time that they really can't afford to be spending more. So where do they get the money? Well, they do what governments always do. They borrow. 
They borrow in order to spend. They borrow in order to put programs in place to ease the economic hurt or what they perceive to be economic hurt during these recessionary time frames. Now, here's why we have boom and bust cycles in the economy. Governments are really good at borrowing money, but they're not very good at paying that money back. So when during periods of recession, when during, during down periods, down cycles in the economy, the government borrows money to spend to take up the slack, they don't when the economy resumes and recovers and tax revenues recover, they don't always, or rarely I should say, from my study, pay the money back. So when the next down cycle hits, they have to spend even more. Why do they have to spend more? Well, they have to spend money to take up the slack if you're following the Keynesian School of Economics. But you also, ha also have to service the, the debt that you've already accumulated. You have to pay interest on that debt. So each boom cycle and bust cycle gets a bit more extreme. And that's what's happened really since the early 70s when then-President Nixon closed the gold window and officially made the dollar a fiat currency. Since that time frame, you can look at all the boom and bust cycles that have existed, and each boom and bust cycle has gotten more extreme. My guest on next week's program, Mr. Michael Pento, is going to talk about his book. And his book uh, talks about the fact that the government can continue to borrow money. However, that has a limit as well. His book is titled The Coming Bond Market Collapse because that eventually has consequences as well. So we have to look at how to protect our assets. And as you know, if you've been a listener here to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program, we advocate a two-bucket approach. And you can learn more by going to rla.yourportfoliowatch.com and subscribing to our newsletter. I'll be back after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me on today's program is uh, a past guest I'm very pleased to have back on the program. Uh, Mr. Lawrence Reed is president of the Foundation of Economic Education. 
Uh, it's a terrific uh, organization. Uh, I would encourage you to check out their website at FEE.org. They're constantly posting articles. And uh, uh, Larry, first of all, welcome back to the program. Hey, thank you, Dennis. It's a great pleasure. And for our listeners maybe that are not familiar with your work at the Foundation for Economic Education, could you fill them in, please? I'd be happy to. Uh, The Foundation for Economic Education is focused on young people of high school and college age, and we, through a very robust website, fee.org, educate and inspire young people uh, to ideas of liberty, free enterprise, and personal character. We also have uh, seminars on campuses all over the world, and in fact, uh, over this past year, we reached in person about 30,000 young people, but millions more about a million unique visitors every month on the website. Well, that's terrific. Uh, before we jump into uh, a couple topics that uh, we had uh, uh, lined up for today, is your job teaching young people about liberty and free enterprise getting more difficult with this uh, movement towards socialism we seem to be seeing? Oh, well, there certainly are some uh, young people who aren't interested and uh, and don't want to hear the message. But uh, we have no shortage of young people coming to the website or coming to our events. On average, there's a fee-sponsored event or co-sponsored event every week somewhere in the world, and we almost never have a problem uh, filling the house. Well, terrific. Well, you um, are involved in an initiative that uh, I think is terrific, and uh, we've got a segment here to talk about it. Uh, the initiative is the Open the Books Initiative, and there was a letter, or I should say an open letter to President Trump that uh, you signed that was published in the Wall Street Journal about the Open the Books Initiative. Can you explain to the listeners what it's all about? I'd be happy to. The initiative was prompted by the fact that neither party in Washington seems interested in addressing the uh, out-of-control spending that the federal government is engaged in. Uh, We just crossed uh, within the last couple of weeks the $22 trillion mark in terms of America's national debt. Um, And this year's deficit alone, just in this single year's federal budget, the deficit uh, may exceed $900 billion. So we're going to add almost another trillion to the national debt uh, in just one calendar year. This is unsustainable. So the idea behind the Open Books Initiative was to uh, try to rustle up public support uh, and support in Congress for addressing the spending problem. And uh, if we have time, I'd be happy to tell you what some of the ingredients of that initiative are. Well, I would I would love to do that, and that was my intent for this segment, so I think we're on the same page here. And, you know, I just recently put a piece in our newsletter that, that goes out to our clients and our friends that uh, – the Treasury Department's own report said that we are on an unsustainable track. So something has to change, and if we don't change it, obviously the markets will eventually change it for us, which will be unpleasant. So let's jump in and and talk about uh, some of the ingredients as to uh, what you're proposing. Okay. Uh, Your listeners can also learn a lot more about the Open Books, uh, Open the Books initiative if they just go to openthebooks.com. There they'll see the details of the proposal. There are four major steps to it. One is to have complete transparency, a transparency revolution, in fact, in federal spending. 
we think that every department and agency in uh, the federal government should, um, um, with the exception of classified expenditures, should be made public and easy to see. And the, the mere fact of transparency uh, may be culture changing because uh, a lot of people will say, wow, I didn't realize that uh, this or that agency was spending this much or whatever it may be on these things. So I think it, before you can get spending under control, you have to uh, show people what it is the government is spending on. And then close behind that, step two of the Open the Books initiative is to begin a war on waste. Uh, we'd like to see an immediate uh, 10% cut in expenses uh, at the White House and in government departments and agencies. Uh, they just keep getting more money every year, whether uh, we have the money or, or have to print it or borrow it or not. And uh, so that would that would start uh, a, a war on waste, but there's so much more that needs to be done. Those are the first two steps. Well, Larry, let's talk a little bit about that, because when you look at the way the government can potentially deal with this, this deficit, and you mentioned uh, $900 billion again this year, almost a trillion dollars, they can either raise the money through taxes, uh, or they have to cut spending, or uh, they team up with the Fed, or the Fed uh, prints money and engages in bond purchases, and you know that never has a happy ending either when you study history. So, how do you propose that you know that you get the American public on board with cutting spending? It just seems to be a real uphill battle. Uh, it is, but I think that the OpenTheBooks.com initiative begins to get people focused on uh, uh, the, the out-of-control spending. We're not even talking about it right now in, in Washington, or hardly at all. The focus is on everything from supposed Russia collusion to immigration, you name it. But the number one issue ought to be the fact that we're spending money we haven't got. We're mortgaging uh, the generations to come. Uh, we're saddling the country with an unsustainable debt trend. And unless that's turned around, uh, this country is going to end up uh, in very deep financial trouble. But it is going to be a, a massive educational effort. And even the OpenTheBooks.com uh, initiative is really just a start. I personally would like to see entire agencies, departments of government just yanked out root and branch. Uh, beginning with the Department of Education. There, there's almost nothing to show for what they spend billions of dollars on. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, you know, a lot of people think that it's sort of free money, so it's hard to get their attention. You know, step three of the Open the Books initiative is to mobilize government employees and investigative journalists. Can you elaborate a bit? Yes. Uh, on this matter, it's important, I think, for government employees to be brought in, uh, maybe through uh, providing incentives to ferret out waste and to expose it. Uh, they, they know where it is, um, and so do investigative journalists, the good ones. Uh, unfortunately, these days, there are uh, far fewer, I think, than there used to be. Uh, but they're out there. It's just a matter of uh, finding the kind of, uh, 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 you know, the, the strategy, I guess, to to call attention to it. There's a lot that the president could do and leaders in Congress if they just focused on it. You remember uh, Senator Proxmire of Wisconsin way back, probably 30 years ago. He used to have the Golden Fleece Award. Every month he would spotlight uh, a new uh, 
wasteful expenditure in government. Nobody's doing that these days. Uh, and yet the need for it is greater than ever before. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and Larry, when you look at the, this early crop of 2020 presidential hopefuls, um, is, is there anybody out there that is making this uh, a focus in their campaign uh, that maybe I've missed? Well, the only people so far formally announced, I think, are Democratic uh, candidates. There may be maybe Governor, former Governor Weld of uh, Massachusetts has indicated that he may challenge uh, President Trump in the Republican primary. But so far, everything is uh, on the Democratic side, and none of them, not a one, is serious about uh, bringing federal spending under control. They all have their own laundry list of things they think the government should spend on or expand its spending on. Uh, rather than uh, reduce its expenditures. And you've got the Green New Deal people. Uh, half the Democrat uh, candidates have already endorsed that. That's $93 trillion over the next 10 years in, in new spending, uh, if something like that were to be adopted. So none of them are serious about this issue of, of federal spending. Yeah, and I had uh, Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff uh, on the program not long ago, and he pointed out that the fiscal gap of the United States is presently $200 trillion. So when you look at the, the national debt, as you pointed out at the beginning of this segment, that just exceeded $22 trillion. But when you add in unfunded liabilities of Social Security, Medicare, and other programs, according to Professor Kotlikoff, we need a couple hundred trillion dollars in hand today to meet all future expenditures. So when you start talking about $93 trillion for the Green New Deal or $32 trillion for Medicare for All, uh, those are really just programs that uh, you know we shouldn't even be thinking about. Isn't that right? Yeah, absolutely. There was a time in this country when uh, people thought sensibly about government spending, and you had politicians from both parties who would uh, from time to time say, hey, it doesn't matter how much I like this or that, or would like to do this or that. We just haven't got the money. But now everybody thinks it doesn't matter uh, what we want to spend money on. We'll find it somewhere. Uh, but that translates into simply going deeper into debt or printing the money and reducing the value of the currency and setting ourselves up for a massive fall uh, some, at some point in the future. So I would say that right now, though it's hard to get people's attention, uh, if we don't do anything about this, we will get their attention when there's some kind of financial crisis over this because these trends are unsustainable. Yeah, and uh, while we have time in this segment, Larry, let's get to the fourth component of the Open the Books initiative, and that is uh, report the progress to the public. How would you propose that that be done? I think in this case, the president would have to take the initiative uh, and on a quarterly basis, monthly basis. Uh, you know, right now, it's sort of... Uh, ad hoc, if at all, uh, the administration ought to report to the public, here's what we've saved, here's where we've cut, here are the agencies we're targeting for further reductions. Some kind of regular report that makes the headlines, that gets people's attention, so that they start to realize uh, we've got to do something about this. So spotlight every success at finding and exposing waste and encourage more people to come forward to help us find more. Well, Larry, it seems to me that uh, that would be good politics because certainly uh, there's a large segment of the American population that understands the consequences of debt and understands that this this can't continue. Um, and it seems to me that if some if the president or some candidate stood up and said, "Look, I'm going to eliminate spending every month, and I'm going to get on TV and tell you what I did," uh, it seems to me that would win over uh, the American people. But um, maybe I'm a little bit old-fashioned. 
No, I think it would uh, in many parts of the country, but there are some parts uh, where the sentiment is so far to the left that, uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not so sure we'd get to them. Uh, but you don't have to reach everybody to make uh, substantial change. But, you know, in New York City, uh, that elects people like uh, Mayor de Blasio, who uh, is off the, the left deep end, and also uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. I mean, what are those people thinking, uh, that they could elect uh, such people who have no end to the laundry list of things they think government should spend your money on? Well, Larry, I'm a big fan of your organization, the Foundation for Economic Education. The website is fee.org. Um, if someone wanted to learn more about supporting your organization, can they get that information on the website? Absolutely. It's very easy to find. We invite people to contribute, to sign up for our free email service. Uh, everything that we do is on the website, including a, a notice of uh, forthcoming events. Well, I am on the email list. I enjoy it very much, and I would encourage the listeners to do that as well. I will continue my conversation with Mr. Lawrence Reed of the Foundation for Economic Education when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tuberg, and your host. I have the pleasure today of chatting uh, once again with uh, Mr. Lawrence Reed. Uh, Larry is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, a terrific organization. And if you're just joining us, I would encourage you to check out their website. It's easy to remember. It's fee.org, F-E-E.org, fee.org. So go check it out. Uh, you know, let's talk a little bit, uh, Larry, uh, we talked a little politics and some far left politics. Uh, certainly when you take a look at what's going on in Venezuela, which we have been following here uh, on the program uh, at least every couple weeks, um, it is simply, um, it's simply chaos. Uh, inflation of over 1,300,000%, as I recall, uh, officially. Um, how did they get there? <laughs> Venezuela, Dennis, is an example of going for socialism uh, whole hog uh, instead of by steps. Uh, a country that swallows this poison uh, and swallows it energetically and, and uh, in a major dose inevitably ends up in this kind of a mess. Hyperinflation, the concentration of power, the erosion of democratic values and institutions, uh, and the impoverishment of the great majority of the people. 
20 years ago, Hugo Chavez came to power in Venezuela. It was a relatively free country at the time and the richest in Latin America. Now it is uh, very unfree uh, with uh, uh, media that's closed down, with uh, erosions of freedoms of press, assembly, and speech, and what have you, and uh, power concentrated pretty much in a single man's hand. Uh, so it's really uh, degenerated quickly because they've put socialism uh, into effect uh, without reservation. Price controls, uh, in, in printing of money, uh, massive government expenditures, nationalization of business, uh, all of the things that socialists uh, like to call for, well, they got it uh, full bore in Venezuela, and now they're in the dumpster. So, Larry, you uh, wrote an article about this, and uh, I'm going to quote just a little bit from the article. Uh, you say, to those who say the injuries of Venezuela are simply too severe to expect anything but a long, slow recuperation, I say nonsense. Uh, strong statement. So if Mr. Larry Reed is in charge of Venezuela, how do you get Venezuela back on its economic feet? Well, we have examples in the not-too-distant past of countries that have been thoroughly messed up by socialism and then turning uh, themselves around in short order. If you get the right ideas and the right people uh, in place, you can take a ravaged economy and put it on uh, the road to recovery uh, pretty quickly. Best example I can think of is uh, Germany right after World War II. If you just imagine uh, West Germany, defeated, devastated, divided, occupied by foreign powers, uh, they had hyperinflation. They'd had all those years of socialism under the Nazis. And yet, within 10 years, the whole world was talking about the German economic miracle in the mid to late 1950s. And what happened was a man named Ludwig Erhard unshackled the economy overnight. He went on radio on a Sunday uh, in late 1948, and he told the people of Germany, we're going to have a sound currency, we're going to cut the size and the expenditures of government, we're going to cut taxes, we're going to have free trade. Uh, he put in place all the policies that were precisely the opposite of socialism and, uh, and of the old Nazi regime, and it was a miracle. And the same thing was true in Hong Kong uh, after World War II um, and New Zealand in the 1980s. So you don't find any example of a com of a country ravaged by capitalism and then turned around positively by socialism the examples are only in the other direction so venezuela needs to dramatically free itself and reduce the size and intrusiveness of government uh, once this uh, socialist regime is overthrown and, and Larry, you mentioned a sound currency, and just to, to, to bring up something that we talk about here on the program uh, occasionally with some of our guests, it seems that with every currency in the world today being a fiat currency, that we have this race to the bottom, if you will, going as far as currencies are concerned. There seems to be devaluation going to, to try to win the export game, which is obviously a zero-sum game. Um, to what extent do you – how would you describe a sound currency in today's environment? A sound currency, whether it be something like uh, a precious metal uh, currency or, uh, or a cryptocurrency or even something that's pegged, uh, to a value uh, based upon the, a basket of currencies or to the dollar. In any event, it has to be uh, something that uh, whose supply is, uh, if not constant, at least 
predictably uh, stable. Uh, that's the issue right now in Venezuela. It's the money supply is not stable. They're printing it like crazy, and, and uh, the Venezuelan currency, as a result, is virtually worthless. So even if they were to abandon their present currency and tie a new one to the dollar, even though the dollar is uh, itself a fiat currency, uh, at least for uh, the moment, it would be a tremendous stability uh, compared to what uh, what they have now. Uh, you know, I'm very friendly ultimately to a precious metal backing for a currency. I think the gold standard served us well. Venezuela should consider that. But uh, more likely, I think, in the near term is dollarization, uh, tying the Venezuelan currency, the new currency that hopefully they'll adopt, uh, to uh, the dollar. Because that, there are precedents for that in the region, uh, most, most recently Ecuador, that has now had 20 years of stability compared to the hyperinflation they had just 20 years ago. And, and Larry, if you go back to uh, you know pre-Chavez days um, and take a look at you know the economic condition of Venezuela, uh, a very wealthy country, a net oil exporter, they were even a net agricultural exporter, as I recall. Um, and you know when you, when you start talking about the elimination of property rights and some of the things you mentioned in your article, uh, you very quickly turn a, a relatively wealthy country into a, a poverty-stricken country. So how quickly do you think Venezuela can get back to what they once were if the right steps were followed? Well, if they take their medicine and implement uh, a sound currency and uh, lower taxes uh, and secure property rights, I think within five or seven years, we could be talking about the Venezuelan economic miracle. I mean, they have at this point no place to go but up. Uh, the economy is in absolute uh, shambles, and several million people have fled. I think you'd have people coming back and bringing capital with them uh, in a new regime if you had uh, a government in its proper place, a sound currency, and, and secure property rights. Uh, free markets can uh, cause uh, ravaged economies to rebound very quickly. It might take a decade before they get back to where they were 20 years ago, but I think it's entirely possible. You know, in your article, uh, Larry, you mentioned free trade. You, you mentioned it just now. Um, you know, what's your take on uh, what's going on now with the uh, trade war with China and, and tariffs? Historically speaking, uh, not a great track record as far as being, imposing tariffs, but, but what's your take on uh, what's going on now between the U.S. and China? Well, there are real issues between us and China. Uh, the theft of, uh, of intellectual property and some of the deals that the Chinese uh, uh, arrange or impose upon foreign uh, businesses, including American, uh, those should be negotiated away. Uh, and I think the president is trying to do that. I'm very concerned, though, about raising tariff rates, uh, even if they're in intended to try to bully the other countries into lowering uh, their rates. Uh, usually trade wars don't end up that way. They just end up uh, escalating. However, at the moment, I'm crossing my fingers because there are some indications that maybe uh, this administration and some of our trading partners will end up uh, declaring a truce in the trade war and reducing barriers across the board. If that should happen, I would, I would applaud. I think it would be fantastic. Uh, but I, I worry very much that uh, tit-for-tat uh, tariff uh, uh, imposition usually ends up uh, not going in that favorable direction. 
Well, let me get your take, too, uh, Larry. We haven't shied away from, from politics in our interview today. Uh, let me get your take on uh, this wealth tax that we have uh, uh, presidential hopeful Elizabeth Warren, Warren uh, proposing. Um, I have said uh, that um, I certainly don't trust that if a tax like that were implemented, that the thresholds would remain constant. We know that, that ha- that's happened uh, with the income tax, that sooner or later everybody's paying it. But what about this whole soak the rich or super rich mentality and and what type of economic effects might it have i think it's pure demagoguery it's uh, a way for people like elizabeth warren to buy votes Uh, they're pitting one group of people against another they're raising expectations that there's this big pot of money out there if we just go swipe it we can fund all kinds of government spending there are only 515 billionaires in the entire country if you took every penny that they had everything that they have. Uh, You'd have enough money to run the government for a few months, and that would be the end of it, because they're not going to come back next year and create wealth or make investments, hire people, start businesses, uh, or grow businesses in that kind of an, an, uh, an environment. So what people like Elizabeth Warren don't understand is that the wealth of the wealthy is often very mobile, and you punish them enough Uh, And they're going to say, well, I'm out of here. I'll go someplace else. And so you never get as much as you think you're going to get. And in any event, it's a pittance compared to what they want to spend in Washington. Yeah. So, uh, Larry, we are nearing the end of um, our time together here. Uh, Let me just ask you, and we've got a minute and a half or so left, if um, you were setting U.S. tax policy, uh, let me know what you think is the most effective tax or tax policy from an economic standpoint? Of course, you know, we tax because we spend, and there's no amount of uh, or no kind of taxation that's ultimately going to be good or fair if you spend too much. So I I would, you know, prefer to tackle the spending side. But once you get that down, then I think the best arrangement for federal taxation would be either a flat rate income tax or uh, my preference would be a national sales tax but not a value-added one, just at the retail level, so that everybody sees clearly what the cost of government is. Uh, but you got to get spending under control. Even those taxes, uh, though better than what we have, would still be uh, way too high. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Our guest today has been Mr. Lawrence Reed. He is the president of the Foundation for Economic Education. You can check out their work at fee, that's F-E-E dot org. You can also learn how to support their uh, very great organization, in my opinion. And, uh, Larry, thanks so much for being on the program today. Love to have you back a little sooner this time. Hey, anytime. Thank you, Dennis. I appreciate it. We will return after these words. Dennis Tubergen here, host of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Thank you for listening. I'd like to invite you to take advantage of a free resource that we have for our listeners. It's a weekly market and economic update that we call Portfolio Watch. It's a free newsletter delivered by email every Monday at market close. In it, we analyze market activity and give you a unique perspective on current economic conditions. To get the weekly Portfolio Watch report delivered to you each week free, Just visit rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. That's rla.portfoliowatch.com. In Portfolio Watch, we track market and economic activity every week and monitor and update our forecast for your money. 
The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com to get your free subscription. The website again, rla.yourportfoliowatch.com. Welcome back to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. I am your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're with me today, and I want to extend some special thanks to my guest today, Mr. Lawrence Reed, who is president of the Foundation for Economic Education. You know, this past week, I was reading some economic data, or I should say I was reading some articles in which some economic data was reported, and in January, it seems that consumer credit rose by $17 billion. Now, that's after consumer credit rose by $15.4 billion in December. What that means is consumers are going more deeply into debt. Now, this continued increase in debt accumulation saw total credit, total consumer credit, rise above $4 trillion. And that's largely auto loans, student loans, and credit card debt. Credit card debt, incidentally, is now over $1 trillion, which is a new all-time high in credit card debt. Student loan debt and auto debt are also high. Uh, student loan debt is now almost $1.6 trillion, and auto debt is now at almost $1.2 trillion. Now, taking a look at that data and combining that with the fact that in the Fed's latest flow of funds report, which was also released last week, the Fed determined that U.S. households actually saw their net worth decline, and that was the first drop in U.S. household net worth in over three years. And consumer household debt dropped $3.7 trillion. Now, what does all this mean for you, and why am I talking about it on today's program? Well, first of all, whenever we see debt rise to very high levels, it often means that we are going to see a slower economy moving ahead. And whenever we see debt rise to very high levels, we can also assume that it will potentially lead to deflation. Now, when I talk about inflation and deflation, let me technically define those. Because when I mention deflation, many of you probably maybe don't even know exactly what it is that I'm referring to, but if I talk about inflation, instantly you think about things costing more. Well, inflation is really an, an expansion of the money supply. The fact that things cost more when we have inflation is simply a symptom of inflation, but technically speaking, inflation is an expansion of the money supply. When the money supply expands and money doesn't buy as much and it's not worth as much, that means that consumer prices go up, at least nominally speaking. Now, deflation is the exact opposite of inflation. Deflation is a contraction of the money supply. 
Now, here's a very important point of which a lot of people are not aware. Deflation occurs because over 95% of today's money is debt. You see, when credit card debt went to over a trillion dollars for the first time in U.S. history just recently, those people that went out and charged certain goods, charged certain services to their credit cards, may have done so because they didn't have the money to pay for them. And someone going out and buying a car and taking an auto loan typically does that because they don't have the money to pay for a car. So debt or credit spends exactly like money. However, when you take a look at currency in circulation and you take a look at all money that's not currency, over 95% of today's money is debt. It's not currency. It's money owed to someone else. Now, when there's too much debt for the debt to be paid and debt goes unpaid, it means that money disappears from the financial system. In the workshops and seminars at which I speak uh, all around the area, I talk about money going to money heaven. And let me just give you an example to make this point clear. You know, if you go back to the last real estate bubble prior to the financial crisis back in 2007 and 2008, there were a lot of banks out there that were making 100% loans, 100% of the home's value would be loaned to the home buyer. So in other words, no money down mortgages. In fact, they're actually doing it again. Well, let's say that a bank, just to keep it simple, loaned a home buyer $100,000. And the purchase price of the house was $100,000, even though it's really hard to find a house for $100,000. Now let's say that the home buyer is making payments on the mortgage. And let's say that a year passes and now all of a sudden, the real estate market crashes because that's typically what happens when you have too much debt. We get deflation and the value of real estate deflated. Well, let's just say that the house is now worth not 100000 but the house is now worth 60000 and the buyer of the house decides to walk away. The bank now gets the house back because the house collateralized the loan, and the bank now get $60,000 for the house. They loaned 100000 They get back $60,000. $40,000 disappeared. It went to money heaven, and the money supply contracted, and we have deflation. Whenever we see debt reach levels like we're seeing today, and I can't tell you exactly when it's going to happen, but we do know this. We know that debt accumulation has to be limited. Debt accumulation has to be finite. You cannot continue to increase debt levels infinitely because you have to have the money to be able to make the payments. So when you have an economy that grows or expands through debt, when debt accumulation reaches its limit, we enter the bust portion of the boom and bust cycle. And that's what we have been talking about. In the first segment today, I talked about the fact that when the bust part of the cycle hits, Keynesian economists say the government needs to get involved and take up the slack. That creates uh, more government debt and really just compounds the problem. 
Now we have a lot of resources available for you to learn more. Remember, no one cares as much about your money as you do. And I would encourage you to learn more by visiting the website, uh, retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. Retirementlifestyleadvocates.com. On the site, we have a whole resource section uh, for you to learn more. That's our program for this week. Hope you got something you can use. We'll talk again next week. 